The Sober Highway Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Brainwashed Coffee Company. We all know how important coffee is to the recovery community, but what's even more important is that Brainwashed Coffee Company donates 50% of its proceeds to people in addiction recovery. Visit brainwashedcoffeeco.com and use the promo code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout for 20% off your coffee order. What better way to support people in addiction recovery than with a great bag or bundle of Brainwashed Coffee? Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. Boom, 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 everybody say wayo, wayo. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. I hope everyone that celebrated Easter had an amazing holiday. And for those of you that also celebrated uh, Passover, which recently ended, um, I hope you enjoyed that holiday as well. But we are back. It is Tuesday, April 6th, 2021. And you know what that means, right? It is time for episode 16 of the Sober Highway podcast. Um, it may be a little bit of a longer one, but uh, we are going to be doing a playback of the live stream that I did in which uh, I did a viewing of the Demi Lovato documentary series entitled Dancing with the Devil. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Demi has had quite the struggle with addiction over the last few years, which has been very much in the public eye. So, Hopefully you guys have the same reactions as I did. If you want to watch it yourselves, I will link everything in the description of the episode. Get ready, get set, and let's go. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Dan. And my name is Anika. And welcome to the Sober Highway Podcast. We are two young social workers who have dedicated our lives and careers to affecting change in the addiction recovery community. We want to use this podcast as a platform to take the things we have learned over the course of our careers and share it with our listeners. At the end of the day, we hope to inspire as many people as we can to make a change and live a lifestyle free of drugs and alcohol. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I know I paused it. Um, Anika, is it too loud? Like, is it comfortable? Like, is the volume comfortable? Should I raise it a little bit? Put this here. Okay. Wait a minute. Huh? Huh? Okay. I think this was the best show you have ever 
crime. And you know what? It's just only going to get better from here. Yeah. Trying to be quiet, everybody. All right. I've had so much to say over the past two years of like wanting to set the record straight about what it was that happened. FYI, I'm just gonna say it all, and then if we like don't want to use any of it, we can take it out. So you just want to know everything? Yeah. Okay. <sighs> wow. You don't want the true story from me. <laughs> I can't believe y'all are doing this. This is lit, but okay. <laughs> it's tough because we shot an entire documentary that will never see the light of day. It was before she OD'd. This tour has been fun every show. The best way to describe it is that she's just like tuned in. She's here, she's present, she's happy. In that documentary, I was allowing the cameras to see the tip of the iceberg. Can we turn the camera around? I've been working on trying to be free for 13 years. The US tour was absolutely a dream come true, obviously, professionally, but it, um, emotionally was miserable. You know, I wasn't showing them what I was doing behind closed doors. That felt very disingenuous at the time to talk about prior to actually being on the other side of something. This is the first time where we're really telling the truth, you know, for her. Any time that you suppress a part of yourself, it's gonna, like, overflow at some point. And that's ultimately, like, what happened to me in a lot of areas of my life. And it was what led to my overdose, for sure. There's a lot that, that the public don't know. It was weird. It felt like it felt like it wasn't happening. It felt like it wasn't real. It was certainly uh, it's touch and go there for a little bit. She should be dead, like 100 percent. Demi Lovato. Demi Lovato. Por Americana, Demi Lovato. Superstar Demi Lovato. TMZ reports that the singer was rushed to the hospital. Law enforcement is stating that she overdosed. The 25-year-old singer was transported from her Hollywood Hills home this morning. Paramedics reportedly found her unconscious. Suffering what appeared to be a heroin overdose. Clearly, she knew she was using drugs. Can I? Don't... I'm actually going to pause this really quick because I, I know that we're going to get to this at some point, but, like, I just... She's a young girl. She's 25. I honestly, like, from from what I recall, or from from was from was what as I can remember, I don't think that you know, like, other than Prince and maybe Michael Jackson, but they were like way before my time. Like, they were out of they were they were like well out of their prime when I heard about them overdosing. Like, I feel like Demi Lovato is still like a very like prominent musician 
And for her to be going through this right now, I could, at the time, I could imagine was very, very difficult for her. So, you know, I, I really hope that, um, that she's doing well now and that she recovered well. Cause I, I, I don't really know too much about what happened after the overdose. All I know is that she overdosed. So let's get to it. Know if she knew exactly what she was taking. After leaving her friend's birthday celebration, Demi texted her drug dealer, who she has been using since April, to bring her oxycodone. It is being reported that the oxycodone was also laced with fentanyl. The more the details come out about what went down, the more it becomes really obvious that she's really lucky to be alive. Oh yeah. I crossed a line that I had never crossed in the world of addiction. It's interesting that it took me a quarantine to work on this trauma stuff. I have never really taken the time to uh, dig deep and do the work on. Oh, when I turned around and saw my dad in those pictures. Oh, yeah. Something about, like, I saw him in rehearsal, it just wasn't the same. Yeah. We had a, an estranged relationship, so we weren't close. And growing up my whole life, I longed for that relationship with him. And then I resented him because he was an addict and an alcoholic and was abusive to my mom. And so I cut him out because I felt like, you know, it was causing more harm than good to have him in my life. His death was very complicated because we don't actually know the exact day that he died. All we know is that by the time he was found, he, his body was too decomposed to have an open casket. He had been laying there, I think, for about a week and a half before anybody found him. And during that was Father's Day. So every summer now that rolls around, I spend it kind of thinking, was today the day that my dad died? Is it tomorrow? And then also knowing that by the time Father's Day rolls around, like he was just laying there rotting. And that was the fear that I always had for him was that he would end up alone. And he did, he died alone. Mental health is something that we all need to talk about and we need to take the stigma away from it. Six years ago, I was drinking vodka out of a Sprite bottle at nine in the morning, throwing up in the car. And I just remember thinking, this is no longer cute. This is no longer fun. And I'm just like my dad. I definitely think that she had some things that were underlying that she was trying to self-medicate, just like I was trying to do when I was taking Xanax. I was trying to self-medicate. You know, she was around for some of the abuse um, from my first husband. And sometimes I feel like that stayed with her for many years when I didn't know that she probably needed to work with a professional to work through some of that. Just like I didn't know they were causing issues in myself. This is me. And I forgot that I unmuted my microphone. I unmuted my microphone. Um, but like you saw exactly how, you know, like a lot of times you could see it right 
like her father was abusive he was abusing he was abusing her mother the mother was her mother was abusing xanax as well and you know this is something that we have said anika and i have said in the podcast before which is if you grow up in an environment where drinking and drug abuse is in the norm the chances of someone else you know of a child the chances of a child developing those tendencies is exponentially higher you know so i think you know i i really feel for demi right now I'm, i'm actually really loving where this is going all right let's get back um i remember chose alcohol over me chose this over me I, I know too much about addiction and mental illness to think that that's that that's all there is to it i also felt a lot of guilt over the years because i've been such an advocate for mental health sometimes i have bad body yet here was my father who had bipolar schizophrenia and then on top of that the disease of addiction you know and i hadn't helped him the way that i would have helped other people or the way that i had been preaching about and that really ate up at me but ultimately like i know that he was kind of too far gone at that point he needed to realize that he needed help himself sobriety has to be your choice and no one else's if it is someone else's choice for you then it won't last and so i tried to get him to get help and i wasn't able to make that happen he just he wasn't ready if you look at my family history my mom has dealt with substances and an eating disorder so i didn't know any different then i was put in beauty pageants where it's extremely competitive and it's all about your looks and your talent my self-esteem was just completely damaged from those beauty pageants i remember actually making a pact with myself saying if i don't win this pageant i will never eat again then you put me in front of a camera and on stage and it's just like of course i'm going to be super competitive and try to be the best at everything that i do there's so many people that depend on you and that you know that you're supporting these people's families and their next break i've realized that I've spent more time trying to please other people the past several years of my life than I have really trying to make it what I want. It wasn't until the last few years that I really fully realized the impact that eating disorders have had on her. We had to be very careful what we ate around her, which sounds insane, but maybe some of the control that she had with her last team was put in place to help her so she wouldn't relapse in her eating disorder but it totally backfired like that just the control and the restriction was was way too toxic for her and she was miserable my team has consisted of assistants a wellness coach a dietitian nutritionist therapist i've had all these people in and out of my life i feel like decisions have been made for me more so than i've made decisions for myself I do feel like she had been in such a pressure cooker of control and trying to keep her well and it had just eaten away at her. There were times where I had to spend the night because she like ate a cookie. I felt like I was always walking on eggshells no matter what. 
what I was eating, around who, what we had in our dressing room, what kind of food. It was very intense. Everyone around her had to be drug tested. You know, she wasn't allowed to hang out with anybody that wasn't sober completely. There were times where I was just like, she's miserable. And I'm just not feeling comfortable in my body right now because I stopped being so strict with food so that I could get more peace with it rather than like living my life in a diet. I put on like a little weight. So like, I don't want to go on stage every night in clothes that are like showy. A part of the problem is too, is like the sketches that they draw. Everything looks good on a sketch because it's a 10 foot, nine pound model with a five inch waist. There's just so much pressure as a female in the industry to look a certain way and to like dress a certain way. And that shit is the stuff that I used to look up to. That shit's really triggering. I started relapsing in my eating disorder. Um, I was already relapsing in it with over-exercising and extreme dieting. And I also had people around me that were really policing my food intake and the things that I was eating. So I was miserable and I like snapped. I think if your life is set up to be focused on how you're not well, then you're not gonna feel well. Whatever we're trying to control or afraid of will end up happening if that's our only focus. The choice that she made was, I think it was for agency for herself, but also I think it was a major act of rebellion where it's like, you're gonna tell me what I can and can't do for six plus years, watch me. It was hammered into her head you have to be sober. You have to be this icon, this role model that my sister never claimed to want to be in the first place. I look at my fans as like family, but because I had been so open and honest about the things that I dealt with, I felt like I had to be this perfect role model. I love what she does for young girls and her music just, it saved my life. It's, it's such a beautiful gift to be able to help people. At the same time, you become a martyr in a way that is so isolating, and I think it just gets to you. I don't think she really understands, you know, how much of an impact she has on her fans. I think that to be the poster child of perfection and mental health and all these kind of things is such a dangerous, slippery slope. Six years is a long time to be told that if you slip up, you're gonna die and at some point enough just becomes enough. The legendary, iconic Debbie. <laughs> this is a special day, six years sober. Could you guys hear the guy? Can you hear him? <laughs> oh my god. He is so bad. Oh. I can't get over that. But this, I have to say, I'm loving this so far. Like, I, I could totally, I could totally understand why, like, I could... You know, granted, she's, you know, she's a celebrity, so there are certain things that she has to deal with 
you know, she's not, she doesn't have the luxury, she has the luxury of having all those people on her team, like uh, uh, a nutritionist and a recovery coach and a dietitian and all those things to police her. But at the end of the day, when you think back to what I think her mother said earlier on in the episode, if you don't want to get sober, you're never going to get sober. There's, it's like you have to want it. And that, you know, I think you'll see where this, where that whole thing, like you have to be sober, you have to eat right, like you have to be healthy, like you'll see eventually where this leads to. Um, but we'll go from there. I'll mute my mic. I had a photo shoot and I remember being at the photo shoot and just thinking to myself like I don't even know why I'm sober anymore like I am so miserable um, I'm not happy I have all this stuff that I'm dealing with I picked up a bottle of red wine that night and it wasn't even 30 minutes before I called someone that I knew had drugs on them I'm surprised I didn't OD that night I ended up at a party I just so happened to run into my old drug dealer from six years before and like the odds of that happening was crazy and he like had a duffel bag and I just went to town. I went on a shopping spree. That night I did drugs that I'd never done before. I'd never done meth before. I tried meth. I mixed it with molly, with coke, weed, alcohol, oxycotton, and like that alone should have killed me. So when she had texted in 2018 and was talking about deciding to drink again, it was like, sound off the alarms. I remember driving back to her house, running to her side, and I was like expecting to walk in on her like, you know, face down, ass up, pass out on the floor, like she had had a drink the night before, so now the world was over. And she was kind of sitting in bed, very aware of what the decision that she'd made. And then she was, drinking and, f and fine and, you know, until it wasn't fine. She didn't really open up about what she did that night. We didn't really have uh, necessarily the conversation of honesty that I wanted to start out with. I think in terms of her friends and family, the thing was is that we didn't really know about the drugs. She can hide stuff really, really well. It was only um, like two weeks before I was um, introduced to heroin and crack cocaine. I started using recreationally and obviously like you can't do that with heroin before you become addicted to it. Are we talking about heroin? Are we doing that? Yeah. Okay. Okay, then I'll just tell you the real, I'll just give you the real. There was so many red flags. I mean, we had done a game night. She disappears from game night. Everyone's kind of looking to me like, Syra, where is she? And so I go upstairs and I find her in the bathroom and she's got, you know, tinfoil and she's smoking something. And so I walk over to her and I grab it and I'm like, what the f are you up to, bro? Like, this is not it. And she didn't even notice I was there, you know? And I was horrified and devastated. So I stayed there and just made sure she didn't like you know, kill herself, and the next day I just told her, I said, you need to go get help. I can't do this anymore. It wasn't until I went on a trip to Bali a few weeks later that I realized I had become physically dependent on it. 
And it was on that trip that I actually wrote Sober. I got no excuses for all of these goodbyes. It wasn't my intention. I'm sorry to myself. I went away, I went on tour to Europe. Um, I stayed clean, kind of, like, wasn't doing drugs, but was drinking a lot. When I came back to LA after tour, I picked up where I had left off, and I was very heavily using. Sorry that I'm here again. I forgot the words. <laughs> There's only a certain window as a parent that you have to guide your kids. And you can give them advice when they're older. You can certainly advise them when they ask you. But a lot of it you don't see because they don't live in the same house as you. I went out to a friend's party, and none of my friends knew what I was using. So I kept it very hidden from everyone. That is one thing that I was very good at, was hiding the fact that I was addicted to crack and heroin. Demi is very good at hiding what she needs to hide. Demi's good at making you believe that she's okay. Oh, hey, be careful. Okay, on tour. I don't know why, but like I've just like felt like I needed to tell you that ever since I was at your house. Like, okay. just be careful. I'm always careful. Take care of yourself. When you deprive someone of something, they definitely find ways to get what they want. I had told some friends, hey, I w I've been sober since I was 19. Like, I want to try this drinking, smoking thing. Like, I just want to see if I can handle it and I've been stir-crazy, and I, you know, want to see if I can do it. So to them, I wasn't doing these hard drugs. To them, I was just normal again. I met up with some friends. We went to several different bars. We came back to my house, um, and around 5.30 in the morning, I said I was going to bed. But the reality was that I had called one of my dealers over. Paramedic officer 65, what's the address of the emergency? I, we just need to get some money out here. Yeah, do you know what happened to her, okay? I'm gonna be there shortly, stay with the patient. I'm gonna remain on the line with you all the way until the paramedics arrive, okay? Okay, we just need someone to block them down, right? Yeah, please. I, I don't know what to say.
Um, I'm actually very, very pleased with the first episode. I think it was amazing. You know, I think, I mean, there's really, there's really not that much for me to say. I think of all the documentaries of celebrities in recovery that I've seen, this very well might be the best one. Um, for those of you that, you know, were popping in and checking it out with me, um, you know, I really appreciate that. Um, I, I honestly don't know what else to say. I, she literally hit the nail on the head with everything. Like you literally, like you tell somebody when you tell someone in recovery that they're not supposed to do something, they're going to want to do it. You know, um, it, it, I, everything that her parents said, everything that she said are things that parent, that parents of patients that I've worked with and that patients of that patients themselves have said. So, so far, this hits, this hits home perfectly. Before we get back to the episode, Anika and I would like to remind you to check out our sponsor, Bootkit Clothing. Bootkit is an inspirational brand with the mission to inspire and motivate people to live life without regret and accept challenges that are worth the risk. Visit the link in the episode description and use the promo code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout for a discount on your order. I'm actually wearing one of their hats and hoodies right now as I'm recording this episode. Again, check out Fukit Clothing at the link in the episode bio and help support an amazing brand bringing awareness to mental health issues and suicide awareness. And now, back to the pod. All right, let's uh let's get into episode 2, part 2. All right, let's go here. And I'll mute my mic again. So the morning of the overdose, Demi had, she had really wanted to make this doctor's appointment. So I got over there extra early to wake her up for it. Um, her door was closed. So whenever her door was closed, I kind of just took it as a hint, like, hey, just knock. So I knocked. Natalie, her chef at the time, she had just arrived in I heard her in the kitchen, so I went down to talk to her for a little bit. And then I went back upstairs and I knocked again. At this point, I was kind of just like, okay, we're gonna be late. I was getting a little annoyed with her. And I think I might've even texted her and like, hey, like, let's go. And I opened the door really slowly. Um, and it was really dark and cold in her room. And I kind of got chills, honestly. I thought that she was just drunk or hungover. So I kind of started to like nudge her a little bit like, hey, like, let's get up now. Like, it's time to go. She wasn't really moving. She was like drooling. I called Max Lee security. She's not waking up. Um, she's not really responding. I don't really know what to do. I rang security and I said, Jordan's just called me in a panic. I need you to go into the room now and tell me everything you see. She was propped up, uh, vomit everywhere, but she was on her back, which isn't good. So I told him, put her on her side, um, clear her throat, and uh, I'm on my way. By that point, some more people had started to arrive at the house. And I'm just kind of like, do I call 911? Like, what do I do? So I, I called. And I just remember sneaking downstairs to make the phone call because I didn't want to get in trouble 
for calling 911. While I was on the call, someone told me to... I'm going to pause this right now because I want to say something. Um, if, if you have a loved one that is... I, and I'm, I'm going to say this as a, you know, not in my therapist role, but if you are concerned about someone who is in recovery that say maybe they've overdosed and you want and you need to call the police or you need to call 911 paramedics whatever it is you should never feel you should never feel bad you should never feel like you're going to get in trouble because at the end of the day you saved this person's life um if this was a friend of mine and she said well what the hell you called the police on me you called 911 on me i would much rather have that person not like me and have them be alive than for that person to overdose and die knowing that I could have done something and I chose not to. And I'll stand by that. If that happened to a friend of mine and they said, I don't want to be your friend anymore because you called the police on me. Fine. I was trying to be a concerned friend because I love that person. You should never feel bad having to call an ambulance on your friend who's possibly overdosed or family member who's overdosed. You know what I mean? And we'll get, well, I'll say it many, many times. Anika will say it many, many times. So yeah. You tell the operator, no sirens. Hang in there, okay? We're on our way. I'll let you know when they're outside. You should be hearing the sirens real soon. With no sirens, please, right? No, 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 no. This is a medical emergency. I, I don't have control over that. Well, this is definitely a medical emergency for her. I was quite impressed with Jordan's handling it. I couldn't care what anyone thought. Get an ambulance there. The ambulance came. They came upstairs to her room. They got their Narcan out, trying to really just bring her back to life. Um, there was one point where she turned blue, like her whole body completely turned blue. And yeah, I was just like, oh, she's dead for sure. Yeah, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. It was, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Really tough to watch. Ooh, I've been good. Don't I deserve it? I think I earned it. Feels like it's worth it in my mind. My mind. It was my mom, me, and Madison upstairs in my mom's room. And I looked down at my phone and I saw that everybody in the world was texting me. The first thing I got was a text from a mutual friend saying, I'm so sorry. And I was like, huh? I'm so sorry. I heard about Demi. I'm praying for your family. Like, I'm really praying for Demi. You guys are in my prayers. I was so confused. I thought maybe she'd been in a car accident. I had no idea. I get a call from our tour manager. Demi's in the hospital. And I'm like, shut up. And this guy is known for joking around. I started getting a flood of texts saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I was like, sorry about what? Like, what is happening? And then Max calls her security. So before I could get to try to find out on my phone what had happened, um, I got a call from her assistant. I heard my mom pick up the phone. It was something in her voice that told me something really, really bad just happened and I should probably get my clothes on because we need to leave. She said, 
Demi overdosed. And I said, is she okay? When I heard her on the phone being like, okay, okay, all right, but is she okay? Is she alive? Is Demi, is Demi alive? And she said, she's breathing, we're at the hospital, but she's not talking. She had texted me the night before and she said, can you go out to this like show with us or something? And I was like, I'm so sorry, I can't. I have to fly to New York tomorrow. So the next day I fly to New York and the plane lands and everyone turns on their phone. People are gasping in the plane. It was so surreal. And I'm looking at everyone's phone and it says Demi Lovato overdose. I got a hold of Diana and she told me what had happened, but was like, oh, she's okay. It's gonna be okay. She's all right right now. You just need to get on the plane and come. But later that day I talked to her security and uh, he told me the truth. And that the next 24 hours are gonna be tough. We'll know if she's gonna make it within the next 24 hours. And I said, what do you mean if she's gonna make it? Uh, says, we don't know this next 24 hours is important. I was just devastated and I didn't understand what was going on. I, I'm, I'm so confused. What, like, what are, you what are you talking about? I was just with her. Her oxygen levels, when she came to the hospital, they were dangerously low and uh, they were trending down. Uh, there were 70% some of her health and age, we expect it to be closer to 100%. Time is brain, is what we like to, we like to say, and, and the longer you go with the brain being starved of essential nutrients, uh, the longer it's injured, the more difficult is the recovery. It was like a horror movie. They put her in ICU. She had a tube in her neck that was taking her blood into a machine, cleaning it, and then putting it back into her neck. And as a parent, you're watching all of her blood come out of her body into a machine and come back. I asked the doctor, I said, what happens if she pulls out that tube in the middle of the night or when we're not watching her and he actually kind of laughed and he said that tube's not coming out it's sewn into her neck I, I actually don't think people realize how bad it actually was I had three strokes I had a heart attack I suffered brain damage from the strokes um, I can't drive anymore and I have blind spots in my vision. So sometimes when I go to like pour a glass of water, I'll like totally miss the cup because I can't see it anymore. Like, um, I also had uh, pneumonia because uh, I asphyxiated um, and multiple organ failure. She asked me two or three times what happened. And I said, Demi, you're, you're in the hospital and you, you overdosed. And she, she just sat there and said, Ugh. like she was really upset with herself. Hi, I'm amazing so far.
this episode. Um, that's what happens. That you know, it's not. It's not like you just walk it. You know, you you overdose. They Narcan you. They take you to the hospital. They stabilize you and they let you go. It's not always like that. It can be like that. I've seen it in the emergency room. I've seen it happen. But you know, this is very very unfortunate that that she was so messed up like this medically. I mean, thankfully, you know, everybody, the people that are on her team, you know, thankfully they found her and, you know, they were able to revive her with the Narcan. I think it's always important to have Narcan on hand. I keep a kit with me in my bag when I go to and from work. We always have Narcan in the hospital, of course. Um, The paramedics always keep Narcan in the ambulances and whatnot. Um, But yeah, so far, again, very, very impressed. All right, let's get back to it. But that night, I wasn't injecting it. I was smoking it, which is another reason why I was so shocked when I woke up in the hospital, because I was like, no, I'm not injecting it. I can't overdose on it. At the end of the day, if you do too much of anything, it's going to kill you. I was like, all right, I need to get help. I did ask, um, is it out there, you know, like I... My mom was like, yeah, it's out there. Everyone knows. A lot of people are worried. A lot of people are concerned. And a lot of people love you. And um, that's all you need to worry about right now. Typically, when we hear about drug-related ingestions, you know, they come to us too late. I'm really lucky to be alive. Um, my doctors said that like i have to share this look what just came on my thing if you can't see it demi lovato performing live on tiktok right now how ironic is that or what a coincidence that is but yeah let's get back to this i had five to ten more minutes um and had my assistant not come in i wouldn't be here today I have to give thanks to the doctors that took care of her. And she had several. One was working on her brain. One was working on her kidneys. One was working on her eyes. And so they were trying to figure out a lot in that first 24 hours. What the dialysis does in this case is it removes the toxins and the fluid accumulation and prevents the brain from swelling and becoming more injured. They came to me and said we can either go to the neck or we can go in down here. I remember them trying to sew it into my groin, mm. and it was so painful, even on whatever drugs I was on. They gave the two options, and I said, please try this part first, for obvious reasons. Then he came back to me and said, we just can't do what you got to do. Yeah. He put her on that machine to clean her blood immediately, and it just, I think that's what saved her life. I actually had to schedule another meeting to discuss what had happened because a lot of being in the hospital was so blurry for me. I wanted to go back and really understand the full magnitude of what had happened. The first moment that I saw Demi in the hospital, when she first opened her eyes, she looked at me, I grabbed her hand and I said, I'm here and I love you, just to let her know I had gotten to the hospital. And she looked me dead in the eye and she said, who is that? Just something you never want to hear your sister say. 
That is by far the worst moment of my life was when she woke up and she was like, I can't, I can't see, I can't see anything. And we all kind of looked at the nurses and the doctors and were like, what, like, wh what do you mean? What does she mean? What, what do you mean she can't see anything? I was legally blind when I woke up and my little sister was at my bedside and I was so blind that I couldn't see who she was even though she was standing next to me. And I asked her, I was like, who, who are you? And she just started sobbing because she thought from then on I was not gonna be able to see. The areas of her brain that were initially affected were the, the vision centers, the back of the brain. Uh, the idea was to mitigate the damage and to provide the best opportunity for recovery. The first time you got sober, I think it was in response to the fact that your parents told you you couldn't see your sister Madison. And then to bring it full circle, you couldn't see your sister in a literal sense. I know that's not what they literally meant. Um, I know they meant it metaphorically, but it's really ironic and in a weird way poetic that I, it ended up happening like that and me not actually seeing her. To be honest, when I found out that Demi wanting to be able to see me and keep a relationship with me was one of the reasons she went to treatment, I didn't believe it that a sister relationship like that could stand in the way of Demi and her addictions, even if for a moment. I think that God has a twisted sense of humor sometimes. I think people can understand picking up a joint. What gets harder for people to understand is the harder drugs. How does that even happen? How do you even do something like that? So my cocktail before I got sober was Coke and Xanax together. It was an upper and a downer, and I loved the combination. Once I relapsed, the floodgates were open. Within a couple of weeks, I called a drug dealer, and I was like, do you have Coke and Xanax? And he said, no, but I have crack and heroin. And I was like, I've always wanted to try it. So it might be hard for people to understand, but when people relapse, and this is you know, pretty much the case always, is that people will not, they won't even return to where they last used. They will return to a much harsher bottom. I knew that what I had been looking for, I hadn't found yet. But what I had been looking for was not in the form of a drug. It was the spiritual growth that I've had over the past, I even want to say like seven months. That spiritual growth is what I was looking for. If you're trying to lose belly fat, stop doing cardio. This sounds backwards, right? Well, believe it or not. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Still, still blown away. This is unreal. Unreal, unreal. Even, even the stuff that her, you know, that her friends are saying is true. Like her sober companion, I think her name was Sarah. Or Syrah or Sarah or something. All right, let's uh, let's get back into this. Who doesn't want to help themselves? I mean, you can cut them off, you can threaten, you can offer help as many times as you'd like. And I think that was something we struggled with for a while, which is how far do we push? How much can you pull away from someone because of their addiction until you just become an asshole? It wasn't fair, actually, to everyone that was around me during that time, because when I did end up in the hospital, they were kind of thrown for a loop, too, of like, whoa, what, 
what do you, what the f have you been doing? What do you mean? And that was my fault. That was me manipulating the people around me and making sure they never found out. When she decided to not be sober anymore, I never had been in an experience with her where it was bizarre or out of control um, to the point where I was like, this is not gonna be good. This is not gonna turn out well. And I think that's where we all were being fooled. My birthday wasn't crazy. It was my closest friends. My mother was in town. Demi Security was there, her bodyguard. And I said, you know, let's just all hang out. So it was about midnight, 1230. A couple people went home and she was like, let's like, let's go back to my house. We came home to her place. She offered us LaCroix. In my head, I'm like, that's cool. And it made me feel comfortable. We danced on the roof and this and that. And we just started to get tired. And I'm like, all right, I'm going, I'm going home. Love you. She goes, stay over, stay over. You, you and everyone just stay over. And I'm like, girl, I gotta go home. I have dogs, my mother's there, I gotta go home. No, please, please, please stay over. I'm like, we'll go, let's go hiking in the morning. You know, we're all fine. It's early enough, let's go hiking in the morning. I'll call you in the morning. Great, awesome, love that, I love that. And when I was leaving the house, she was like waving. I just like felt a little odd. I was just like, wow, like that was a really nice night. Why do I feel like I should have stayed? Why do I, and we were halfway away from the house and we pulled over. And I look at my friend Janelle and I said, do you feel weird? And she's like, I feel weird. Have we, should we have stayed? Should we have stayed? And I'm like, no, she's a grown up girl. In my head, I'm like, what is she gonna do? She's gonna go to bed. Like, no, she's fine. I said I was going to bed, but the reality was I had called my dealer over. What people don't realize about that night for me is I wasn't, I didn't just overdose, I, also was taken advantage of. I had not heard of him before. Uh, that was a part of her life that she had kept at least hidden from me. So if she's drinking again and using again, someone has to be supplying this stuff. She has to be getting it from somebody. I found out later, of course, that wasn't the first time that he had come over or supplied her. Um, but she had drunkenly hit him up that night. He had given her drugs. He told her some different iteration of what they were. I don't think he mentioned it was laced with fentanyl. He gave me what I assume now to be fentanyl by giving me aftermarket pills. And on top of that, he also ended up getting her really high and leaving her for dead. I've had my fair share of sexual trauma throughout childhood, teenage years, and um, when they found me, I was naked. I was blue. I was literally left for dead after he took advantage of me. And when I woke up in the hospital, they asked if I had had consensual sex. And there was one flash that I had of him on top of me. I saw that flash and I said, yes. It actually wasn't until um, maybe a month after my overdose that I realized, hey, you weren't in any state of mind to make a consensual decision. That kind of trauma doesn't go away overnight. And it doesn't go away in the first few months of rehab either. You know, that's something that sticks with you for a while after because all of the daddy issues that I'd had growing up, now I was literally discarded and abandoned. That amplified all of my dad's stuff. 
I've realized a lot of my past traumas came to a head that night. But at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my life choices and hold only myself accountable. And the last few years have been about me doing the work to identify and confront those traumas so I can be my best self and truly be happy. But it's not very common that you'd see someone with a drug-related overdose with this degree of multi-organ failure that would come out of it relatively unscathed and do as well as she has. It's like a nice reminder that that it wasn't my time, you know, that there was more life to be lived. When she turned 28 this past year, it is pretty morbid, but we kind of were like, you made it to 28, yes, you survived the 27 club. In a way, it's like probably a subconscious self-fulfilled prophecy. But what's different is she lived through it, is that she survived it. She was where her father was, but she got through it. This right here. You are not Did you know alone. who Demi Lovato was before that night? I did not. <laughs> and I did not Google her for about a week after I started interacting with her. And, uh, sorry. That's fine. <laughs> uh, um... But um, but I didn't do that. I didn't do it deliberately because I don't like to, to influence my medical decision making. But you know she's got some bops. <laughs> I, I, I now know that. <laughs> that was funny. So that's all we have for this episode. If you enjoyed the content, Anika and I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on all of the major podcasting platforms. I'm talking Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Also, please make sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Just search The Sober Highway. Except for on Instagram, make sure not to forget that underscore, The Sober Highway underscore on Instagram. If you want, DM us with any questions you have on any of the platforms uh, that you would like us to answer on the podcast or... If you feel that you have any information that you think would be beneficial for us or our listeners to have. Catch you next week. Bye.